Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning on this beautiful Sunday morning. Man, I couldn't believe how beautiful it is outside. It's a good day to be here as well, and I uh, got to see so many of you come through the front doors and excited about what the Lord is going to do for us this morning. I'm going to invite you to take your Bible, if you brought it, and turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 7. As you're finding your place there in 2 Kings chapter 7, uh, I want to just ask a question and see how many of y'all know what this past Wednesday was. What was the significance of this past Wednesday other than it was Wednesday? Hump day. Well, it was hump day. Uh, yes, that's good. Yes. No, Wednesday is, or was, the second, it was like part two of National Signing Day for NCAA football. I'm sure all of you were aware of that. You were following it. Uh, just, you know, you had your ticker there, who the new recruits are for your favorite team. And you're probably just like me. You, you watch that stuff, listen to that stuff, watch that stuff all the time. Uh, you're passionate about collegiate athletics. Amen? Football, especially. No, this is Virginia. You care about basketball. And I'm sorry for UVA last night. They played a good game, but uh, can't win them all. But I love sports. I love to watch sports. I love to play sports. I love to follow sports. And for me, football is king. Uh, the bad thing about the national championship in college football and the Super Bowl means that everything's over until next season, except for recruiting. Hey, now, we don't allow audience participation. <laughs> it is blasphemous. But recruiting for me is a, a season, and we go from actually playing the season to really getting honed in on the recruiting season, and when recruiting season over, then you've got the spring season and thinking about spring practice and how these new recruits are going to play. And, and last night, I f- saw something on TV that I wasn't expecting. If you were flipping through the channels, you saw a brand new professional football league uh, play a game, and I watched about 30 minutes of it and had to change the channel. just wasn't the same as the NFL or college, but I love, love, love of sports, and many in our country do love sports. Did you know that annually we spend over a $100 billion on sports? Every year, as Americans, we will spend over $100 billion in sports, and half of that expense simply goes to buying tickets, uh, transportation to and from the game, food, beverages, all of the things that goes into actually attending an athletic event. And so I believe it's safe to say that there are some serious sports fanatics in our land. And so that just begs a question, since I know that all of us are such sports fanatics here this morning, what does one look like? i got a few pictures here I want you to see about sports fanatics. Anybody recognize these guys? These are New Orleans Saints fans, and, and I don't know how you can tell, but these guys are actually fanatics. Uh, uh, this is probably not everyday dress for them. It's only when the uh, gold and black are in the Superdome. Here's another one. These are some co- college fans there at Duke University. This is them camping out to get into their arena to go to a Duke basketball game. They are passionate about Duke basketball at Duke University. One of my bucket lists is to be able to go to Duke University and attend a basketball game. So if any of you got connections to tickets, come my way with them if you don't mind. I will welcome that as a gift. Another one. Here's a sports fan. This is a Michigan fan. This is typical Michigan football fan right here in the last several years. What in the world just happened? That's what his mind is thinking. Here's some Chicago Cubs fans passionate about their team. And when the 
the, uh, the pennant a few years ago. And then here's an Alabama fan. Here's enough said on this guy. I mean, they think they've won like 45 national championships over the last 50 or 60 years, and it's probably true they've won close to that many. But sports fanatics are, are prevalent in our, in our culture, and people love to be a sports fan. In fact, one of the clear giveaways to whether or not a person is a fan or a fanatic of sports is simply how they talk, what they do, and what they buy. You look at those three things, and you'll learn whether or not a person is a sports fan. You see, sports fans are not ashamed to let others know what team they root for. That's why they'll color themselves in, in the colors of their team. That's why they'll wear weird things on their heads. I'm an Arkansas Razorback alumni. Uh, I'm a fan. I bleed red, not just because my blood's red, but because it's uh, Arkansas uh, red. In, in, it's just ingrained in who I am. And so as Hog fans, They'll often have these uh, razorbacks on their head, but when it comes to that, I draw the line. I bring my fanaticism down just a level, and I don't do that. I don't wear the the headgear. I will call the hogs. Nick and I will call the hogs, but only at certain times. We're not those weird people that just break out into that, but we are fans. Sports fans are not ashamed to share, but for some reasons, as I've uh, been a Christian for many years, as I've... I've been a part of church for many years. I've noticed that Christians oftentimes are not as eager to tell about their team, not as eager to to share about their love for Jesus, to, to talk about their affection for Jesus and for his church. Why is it that we are so uh, shy when it comes to our expression of our love and affection for Jesus, but when it comes to our favorite sports team, we're unashamed and, and, and unabashed in our uh, love and appreciation and proclamation of our team? Trevin Wax, who works for Lifeway Christian Resources, gives some reasons why this is so. He says, for Christians, some worry that witnessing to a stranger might seem distasteful and turn them away from the gospel. And so they worry that it may come across in a way that would actually uh, push them away from the gospel instead of bringing them near to the gospel. Others worry that witnessing to close friends or relatives might change something in the relationship. And so they don't want to risk a friendship or cut or damage family ties. And then others will just fear rejection. They, they understand that if they share the gospel, if they talk about Jesus, if they invite people to church with them, then there's a decision that has to be made. They're either going to say yes or no. And so the idea of being rejected, them rejecting the gospel, rejecting the invitation, they will look at that and take it personally that it's a rejection against them as well. And then still others worry that they don't know enough about Christianity to give good answers. I would point those type of people to the Gospels, and particularly I believe it's John 9 where the man who was blind was healed by Jesus, and, and, and the Pharisees began to ask him what happened in his life. Did, is he a follower of Jesus too? And he didn't really know how to answer other than the fact of, I was once blind, I met Jesus, and now I see. It's a simple answer. There was a transformation that took place. And so these are some reasons why people are hesitant to share. But research is our friend, and research tells us that we have very little reason to fear. In fact, most unsaved people are hostile. Most unsaved people are rarely hostile to the gospel. In fact, a number of non-Christians are, when they hear uh, about other religions, they hear about other philosophies, they hear about other people's faith, they oftentimes are open to listening. 
And so if we will speak kindly, if we will speak politely about and graciously about the gospel, many times what we will find is that people will likewise respond graciously, kindly, and politely, even when they or if they will reject our call for them to repent of sin and place trust in Jesus. They will do so kindly. No, no, thank you. I, that's not for me right now. I'll, I'll think about this, how they will often respond. I can't even think of a time in my life where I've had a door slammed in my face, where I've had somebody be very mean and ugly upon trying to share the gospel with them. And I've, I've shared the gospel many places in America, door to door, on the street. I've shared the gospel preaching here. I've preached overseas. I've went door to door, shop to shop, doing evangelism and in places like Uganda, uh, sitting down and talking with, with Muslims who, who reject the gospel completely, and I've never found a person who is obstinate to it and c- completely closed off and hostile. Many times people will listen. But regardless of how someone might respond, we know the Bible tells us that we have a responsibility and we also have a privilege to share because God's heart is to bless every home. He wants to bless you, and then through you, bless others. And this is God's missiological strategy. And so what we've been doing over the last few weeks is talking through God's plan to bless every home. You remember the, uh, the promise there in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, where God's promises to Abram that he's going to make of him a great nation. And he says, I will bless you and make you, a, make you a name that's great so that you will be a blessing. God desires to bless every home. And so we want to be a blessing to every home. And one of the ways that we do that is to pray for, to care for, to share with us, we're going to talk this morning, and to disciple every home because we want to be a blessing. Last week at the end of the message, if you were here or listened to it on our podcast or website, I shared an acronym. And I wonder if you remember that acronym, the acronym for the word BLESS. There I shared that uh, just some simple ways to go about remembering how to be a blessing. It begins with, with the letter B, begin with prayer. In other words, I will pray for the people in my life and my community. I'm going to pray for people. And then I'm going to listen is the L. I will listen to, I will discover the needs of others in the places where God is at work. Henry Blackaby has taught us many, many years ago that we need to find out where God is working and join him in that. And this is what it's all about. Just having a relationship with neighbors, having a relationship with people in your community and listening to them. And when you do so, God's going to begin to open your heart and mind and lead you to places where you can do these other things. Where you can eat with them, you can take a meal to them, invite them to dinner, invite them to lunch, invite them to have coffee. Just simply spend time with people in your life. That way you can serve them. So the idea here is I will respond to the needs of others and help them in practical and even impractical ways. Things that bring me and take me out of my comfort zone. And I do all of that so that I can share the story. I want to share the story of the gospel. I want to tell them of what Jesus has done in my life, what he's doing in other people's lives, what the Bible speaks about when it talks of Jesus. And this morning, sharing the story of what God is doing is the theme of this passage that we're going to look at in 2 Kings chapter 7 as we talk about sharing with every home. In this passage, we find four lepers, four men who are leprous. They have a disease called leprosy. It's a terrible disease. And if God didn't move in their lives, they were going to die. 
But what we're going to see here is God did move in them, and God did move for them. He saved them. He provided for them. And not only was his provision for them, it was also for the rest of the people of Israel. And so these four men sought to share what God had given them with the rest of the people of Israel. Look there at verses 3 through verses 9. Through verse 9. The Bible says, Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians, But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses and the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. What's going on here in this passage is pretty miraculous. We see these four lepers experiencing the graciousness and the goodness of God in their life, but the surrounding context was this. King Jehoram was the king of Israel at this time. He's a, not a very good king. He's pretty much of a wicked king. And Ben Hadad, king of Assyria, and his entire army had come up against Israel and, and surrounded the city of Samaria. They were laying siege to the city. And as they had this city encompassed, they had everything blocked off. Front, back, middle, everything was blocked off. No one could come in and no one could go out. They had cut off the supply chain to this city. And as a result, a severe famine began to break out over the people of Israel. And it produced highly uh, costly and inflated prices for the most humblest of commodities. Food was scarce. It was so scarce that uh, the people had begun to eat garbage and, and terrible things. They even were eating dove dung. I think you see there in chapter 6, verse 25. They were trading for anything that they could get their hands on so that they could fill their bellies. They even went so far as to kill their own children and eat their children. So they were turning to cannibalism because they were so hungry. Dire state of Israel caused King Jehoram to seek the head of Elisha the prophet. Rather than seeking God's head or God's face, he sought the head of Elisha the prophet, blaming him for the situation that Israel found itself in. So rather than looking for deliverance, his rebellion sought to put the prophet of God to death. But God was gracious in all of this. And Elisha prophesied that deliverance was going to come to them the very next day. So we find these four lepers. 
We don't give in the names of these four lepers, but in reality, we could probably put our names on them because their story is very similar to the story of each one of us as followers of Jesus. And so I want us to look at this story as we seek to better understand how we can share with every home. Four things that I want to point out this morning. The first is this. These four lepers are faced with a serious dilemma. A serious dilemma. Look again at verse 3. It says, Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? The serious dilemma these four men faced stemmed from two realities in their lives. There was a deteriorating uh, condition that they all experienced and a deadly complacency that was keeping them there. You see, these men were in serious trouble due to the fact that their condition was quickly deteriorating. The Bible tells us that these men uh, were, were stricken with a condition known as leprosy. This is a disease which was horrific in their day. It's horrific in our day, though we don't know much about it because we have ways to treat it and combat it today. And so it's, uh, by and large, wiped out in most places of the world. But this condition literally eats away and erodes a person's flesh. That You die slowly and painfully in your life if it's not treated. In Bible times, this disease was greatly feared, obviously because there was not a lot of options to treat it. You were basically ostracized. The leper, as that person was known, was taken outside of the city and made to live outside of the city with the other lepers who had leprosy. And so they were outcasts, and and they could do nothing to heal themselves. They could do nothing to, to provide for themselves. They were basically at the mercy of the people who were healthy, but they were not allowed to live with them, to intersperse with them. In fact, anytime they came in contact with a person who did not have leprosy, they would have to cry out, unclean, 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 because they were unclean. It was a terrible, terrible way to live a life. These men were in a terrible state. They were literally dying. Just a moment ago, I stated these men could bear our names. And so you're probably wondering, how in the world does my story fit into their story? Here it is. You may not have leprosy today, but all of us have a serious and infectious disease that's deadly upon our life. This disease that we all carry is a, a disease called the disease of sin. In the Bible, leprosy is often used as a symbol to speak for or to symbolize sin. And the idea is that we are to abhor sin just like we would abhor leprosy. We're to run from it. We're to stay away from it. The Bible says that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. And so, like the leper, apart from Christ, we are as good as dead. And these men here were fighting for their lives. We could say it this way, they were in the frying pan, but as you continue to read the story, we see that they don't stay in the frying pan, it gets worse for them. They decide to jump out of the frying pan and jump into the fire because of this famine. See, the famine was continuing to wreak havoc in their life. Their condition was continually deteriorating. There was a scarcity of food in the city, and it was so bad, as I just mentioned, that people were reverting to cannibalism. And to eat garbage. And so it would have been worse for these lepers because they had no way to provide for themselves. They just stood there at the outer part of the wall of the city hoping that enough scraps would come over the wall to feed them. These men were in a horrible situation. The situation was dire. 
but it continued to get worse. Look at there, the latter part of verse 3. They just asked the question, why are we sitting here until we die? Why are we sitting here until we die? This is a profound question that we should be asking of ourselves at times. See, these men identified the complacency that was there. They had a deteriorating condition, but they also battled this deadly complacency in their life. But they identified it. You see, if your situation is deteriorating, and if you've become complacent, you need to do what these lepers did. Many times in our lives, we'll recognize, we'll see, man, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I need to be. But we're not willing to go and do something to change our situation. And these lepers saw that. They saw, my life is a wreck. My life is a mess. I'm, I'm rotting to death. But I can still do something. I can get up out of my situation. I'm not ready to die. I'm not ready to wave the white flag and just pass from this life to the next. I want something to change. Many times... We need to do exactly what these lepers did. We need to shake ourselves from our complacency. We need to get up and do something. These four lepers realized their situation was desperate and that complacency can kill. Let me illustrate this idea of complacency. In 1903, there was a small mining town in Alberta County, Canada, not county, known as Frank, Frank, Alberta. Small town, about a population of somewhere around 600 people lived there. The town was developed at the base of a massive mountain called Turtle Mountain. This mountain towered above Frank about 7,000 feet. The reason the people settled here in this little town was because Turtle Mountain had, a rich, uh, had rich seams of coal within it. Underneath those limestone faces that stood above Frank, Alberta, were these incredible seams of coal. And this coal was very easily excavated from the limestone. And so the people made a lot of money at relatively uh, easy way from the mountain. True Mount, or Turtle Mountain had a lot of problems. Tremors would often shake this mountain, and they began to grow worse and worse and worse as these citizens of Frank drilled into and mined these shafts into the side of the mountain, further destabilizing the mountain. In fact, so unstable was this mountain that the Blackfoot Indians had already renamed this or named this mountain the mountain that walks. They knew that this mountain tremored, that this mountain is often uh, the, 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 the victim of, of earthquakes. But the citizens of Frank ignored all the warning signs until April 29th, 1903. That day, just after 4 a.m., an enormous piece of Turtle Mountain broke off and tumbled down into the valley below. A rock face, 3,000 feet long, 500 feet thick, approximately weighing 100 million tons, tumbled, pounded into the little town of Frank killed at least 76 men, women, and children. Most of the bodies were never recovered. They were buried under hundreds of feet of rock. But all the while, the people knew that they were in danger. They felt the tremors. They knew the condition of the mountain was deteriorating, but they had become complacent. In fact, their complacency was fostered by the, by the reality that they were happy about the tremors. You see, what the tremors would do when they would come in and feel a little, little bit of the earthquake is it would shake the coal loose from the limestone, and they would be able to go in and rather have to, to, to dig the coal or to mine or to blast the coal out, they would just simply go in there and shovel it and put it in their buckets and run it down the rail to the city. They didn't have to do a lot of work, and so they actually embraced the tremors of this mountain because it brought them great benefit. Problem is their complacency killed them. 
And so this morning, if you've never repented of your sin, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today you have no reason to be complacent. Instead, I would encourage you to to be like these four lepers. Look at your condition. See the complacency in your life and begin to act. Get out of your situation. Don't be like these citizens of Frank who, who rested in it and enjoyed it and one day were destroyed by it. These lepers were faced with a serious dilemma, but it led to a strategic decision, which is our second point. Verse 4, if we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall but die. They consider their options, what we see here. They could go into this city and die because of the famine. That was an option they had. They could be complacent and sit there where they were and die because of the famine. Or they could go over to the Syrians and perhaps find help. The worst case scenario is what they say at the last part of this verse. The worst case scenario is we die. We're going to die anyway. I'm going to die. You're going to die. We're all going to die. We are all dying people. You ever realize that? Well, that's a morbid thought, is it not? I, I hope you, I know you came to be encouraged this morning, so I don't want you to take that as a discouraging uh, piece of truth, but the truth is we're all dying. We're all headed to the grave. We're all uh, under the curse and the consequences of our sin. But praise be to Jesus, there can be life after the grave. And so these men understood that we're going to die no matter what, and so let's try to help our situation today and help it to be all it can be. And so people all over our community kind of broadening it out here, or they're all faced with a strategic decision in their life today. They can come to terms with the deteriorating conditions in their lives. They can look to Jesus, or they can remain complacent and die in their sin. These lepers took a venture of faith, and they chose to act. That brings us to a third point. We see a a surprising discovery. Middle part of verse 5 says, But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. Now the second part of verse 8 says, They went into the, to a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Death was staring these men in the face. And so they had nothing to lose by going to the Syrians. Slipping away at twilight. Here, I just want you to picture what's going on here. They, they're contemplating what they're situation was they're contemplating what their future could be and so they decide let's go to the Syrians and so at night probably because they don't want the the Jews to see them or the Israelites to see them they slip away they begin to travel to the edge of the Syrian encampment and they notice that they're not stopped by any guards there's no scouts out there and so they're just kind of slipping along probably walking slow because they're uh, literally falling apart rotting as lepers they move cautiously into the camp and to their surprise they're met by no one The camp was completely deserted. Can you imagine what they were thinking at this point? They're walking into this camp and no one's there. And and what they're seeing is everything has been left. There's animals, there's there's probably cattle, there's horses, there's donkeys. They they see these tents and the tents have everything in them. There's a fire outside, there's a fire in the tent. There's food probably still cooking on the fire. I mean, there's there's meat and potatoes right there in that pot. Can I get an amen for that? I mean, that's that's a hearty meal right there. Meat and potatoes. Clothing. They probably hadn't had a new set of clothes in months to years. There's clothes right there. And then there's treasures. There's silver and there's gold. There's weapons. 
everything was left behind because the Bible tells us the Syrians began to hear things because the Lord created this disturbance and they began to think that armies were coming against them and so they just turned tail and ran back to Syria. And these men who ventured out were able to experience the abundant provision and the gracious provision of God in their lives. The Bible tells us that we're all sinners who have done nothing to deserve what we've been given. And these men didn't deserve anything that they got. I mean, think about who these lepers are. They were not soldiers, at least not at this point. They had not won battles. They had not won victories. They had done nothing to earn what they'd experienced, but it was God's gracious provision, His gracious gift to them. And for us today, we've done nothing to deserve or un the abundant grace and provision of God, and yet the Lord has worked for us. Verse 6 tells us, look there, for the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound. God is the one who brought this victory for them and for Israel. He is the one who saved them. And it was the Lord on the cross who shed his blood to make atonement for our sin and to give us this gracious gift. So if you're in Jesus and you've experienced his life, John 10.10 tells us his desire is for you to experience it to the full, abundantly overflow in your life. And so we have an amazing testimony to share with others. If we will look to Jesus, we will find in him the blessings of God in this life and in the one to come. They had an incredible, surprising discovery as they walked into that camp. Then we see them move into this subsequent duty. See, the lepers were faced with this dilemma. And the dilemma led to making a very strategic decision, which resulted in them making this surprising discovery. Again, can you imagine what they did when they entered the camp and realized no one was there? I mean, they're jumping up and down. They're excited about all that they had around them. They're falling down over that first pot of that meat and potatoes. I mean, they're, they're choking it down. They're gorging themselves. And then they're putting on new clothes. Then they're seeing the riches, and they're going and hiding it, coming back to the second tent. And then all of a sudden, something clicks in their mind. Look at verse 9. It said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. And if we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. And now therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. You see, they face the temptation that you and I face. Temptation was to do nothing. The temptation was to think, this, all this is for me. Look, God's been good to me, and all of this is for me. The entire army of the Syrians have left their wealth and riches and food and animals and everything, and it's all, man, I I hit the jackpot is what they were tempted to think. And yet that was not the case. Neither is it the case for us. Hoarding is a sinful and ugly thing. We call hoarders misers, and misers are ugly people. I want to introduce you to a woman who was born in the middle 19th century, Her name is Hattie Green. She was born in New Bedford, Massachusetts. She was born to a family who was wealthy. Her father was a whaling captain. He owned a fleet of ships. There was no son born into this family, and so Hattie learned to to work in the family business. She became a a captain herself. She learned how to, 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 to captain ships and to lead the business. She learned how to manage finances and So by her late teen years, Hattie had become a very shrewd businesswoman for her parents. Her parents eventually died and left the entire state to Hattie. She became wealthy overnight. 
And because she had this incredible business sense, because she was a, a shrewd business lady, she became not just wealthy, but she became super wealthy. In fact, uh, she's known as the wealthiest woman in the world during her day. This woman would have had billions in today's dollars. Hattie, though, was not someone you would think of as a billionaire. She didn't dress like one. She didn't act like one. She didn't look like one. Hattie was a miser. She was a cheapskate. She only owned one dress, even though she could have had thousands of the most expensive dresses. Her one dress was dirty. It was tattered. It was never laundered. It was a horrible, horrible piece of clothing. The reason she only had that one dress, because it was, and the reason it was always tattered is because she didn't like to spend money at all, even on soap and laundry. She didn't spend clothes on, or money on new clothes. In fact, she didn't spend money on much of anything, even meals. Her favorite meal was oatmeal. You can't get much more cheaper than that. But she ate oatmeal probably every day, and she wouldn't cook it at her little house that she rented, this very meager house. She wouldn't cook it there because she didn't want to spend money on fuel. And so what she would do is she would take her little oatmeal and her little tin can, and she would take it to her office every day. By the way, this was an office that was given to her free by the bank that she did business with. And she would, she would go to the bank every day, take her little oatmeal can with her, and instead of uh, heating it at home and eating it on the way, she would put it up on the heat register at the office so that a little bit of heat could come up and warm the can and then eat it. She cut corners all the time, with everything. She had two children, Sylvia and Ned. One day, Ned was injured. His leg was badly, bad, badly injured in an accident. But Hattie, being a cheapskate, wouldn't take him to the hospital so he could see the doctor and get the needed attention. I mean, today, all of us in this room, we can't even fathom that, I, that idea. I mean, we will go to whatever expense necessary so that our children, our loved ones are taken care of. But that wasn't so for Hattie. She wouldn't take him to the hospital. Instead, she tried to take him to the free clinic that was there for the poor. Unfortunately for her, the people at the clinic knew who she was, and so they refused to treat her because she had the means to pay for her son's treatment. In fact, she had so much means, she could pay for the treatment of everyone else in that area at the clinic. And so rather than taking him to the doctor, she decided to treat Ned at her own house using some home remedies, and Ned's leg eventually had to be amputated. Hattie was an ugly woman, not because of her f physical appearance. She was ugly because she was a miser, a hoarder, a cheap person. She was known, well known, as the witch of Wall Street. You see, it's a sin to hoard things. God's never called his people to be hoarders. God's always called us to be generous. God's always called us and told us and commanded us in his word to give to others, to be a blessing, a conduit through which his blessing can flow to the lives of the people who are around us. And the lepers here in this text, they looked at what they were doing and they said this, what we're doing is not right. We've been We've been stashing this stuff in the sand. We've been hiding it in caves. We've been burying it under rocks. But what we're doing is not right. We need to repent of this. We need to go to the king, and we need to tell him God has provided for the people of Israel. That's what they did. And today, we need to repent of our sin. Because there's times in our life that Christians, let's be honest. Remember, we're not very uh, big on sharing what team we're really on. If you're in a relationship with Jesus, you're on the Jesus team. How many times are we coloring, coloring our faces? We're going out there and cheering for Jesus. I'm not talking about acting like an idiot. 
I'm talking about just being unashamed about who you stand with because he stands with you. So we need to repent of our sins and we need to go out and we need to take up our banners and we need to, to, to march for Jesus, not in the streets necessarily, but in the coffee shops as you sit across the table from someone and you share with them how their life can be changed by Jesus Christ. We need to share the provision, the blessing, the grace that God's given us with others. God wants to bless every home here in Balatan. And the way he does that is to use you and I as his conduit for blessing. He wants you to share with every home. He wants us to share with every home. Hattie Green was a miser. I want to introduce you to a new character from history. His name is George Carmack. He's the exact opposite of Hattie Green. George also lived around this same time period in the late 1800s. Very interesting character from the gold rushes of the latter part of the 19th century. He lived way up in the Yukon region of Canada. He was a prospector. He prospected there on the Bonanza Creek, a tributary to the Yukon River. And George was prospecting one day for gold, which uh, was what people did back then, prospecting for gold and silver. And one day, he was out panning in the river. And he came across a little gold nugget. And then he came across probably another little gold nugget, another gold nugget. And he eventually found not just a few pebbles of gold or a few clusters of gold, he found an incredible vein of gold in the side of the mountain. See, Hattie Green, if she had saw that, if she had discovered that, Hattie would have probably put bars across it, put bushes across it, and sealed it off so that no one could experience it because she wanted to keep it to herself even though she wasn't even experiencing the blessings from it. But not George Carmack. George Carmack did what you had never thought would be plausible. How many Western watchers in here? Some of us older guys probably like Westerns. I, I love Westerns. If you watch those old Westerns, what happens when a prospector finds gold? He doesn't say a, a thing. till he gets his name on some sort of claim sheet, till he gets some, some guards there, because he knows somebody, some rustler is going to try to take it from him. And so George Carmack was not like that. He went down, and rather than trying to hide his deed that he got there, he went down and published it for everybody to see. He went down there and says, I found gold up in the mountains, and there's enough for everybody. I want everybody to come up here to the Bonanza Creek, and let's begin to mine this place for gold because we can get rich. People looked at him and laughed. In fact, his name was known as Lion George. They didn't believe him. They thought he was crazy. It was unheard of. Why would this person who's found gold ever come and share this wealth with others? But that's what George did. Finally, people began to believe, and they began to come up there, and they began to prospect for themselves, and they found gold in them thar hills. You knew that was coming at some point, right? And so rather than just George and his family being wealthy, you know who else was wealthy? A lot of people. See, the wealth of the mountain wasn't just for him. George believed it was for everybody. So a lot of people got wealthy. It was a blessing that God allowed him to find so that others could be blessed as well. This morning, I want you to listen to your pastor. We have something so much more valuable than anything this world has to offer. What we have to offer to people is the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. God calls us to share that gift with others. He calls us to share it with every home. So I don't know how to share the gospel. You've believed on the gospel, right? Tell them what Jesus has done for you. 
That's what the, guy, the blind guy in John 9 did. I don't know anything other than the fact that I was once blind, and now I see. I don't know anything other than the fact that I was hopeless in my sin. I, I, was, I, was, I was absolutely depressed. There was devastation in my life. I was undone. I felt horrible. There's no hope for me. I, I was just messed up. And all of a sudden, somebody told me about Jesus. Somebody told me about what Jesus did for them. And I just believed upon the gospel. I believed in this Jesus that they talked so wonderfully about. And for somehow and in some way, when I believed on Jesus, I began to feel different. I I began to act different. I can't explain everything, but Jesus transformed my life. That's a testimony that people can believe. You don't have to be a preacher to share the gospel. In fact, if, if the world coming to Jesus is contingent upon the preachers, it's never going to happen. You know why? Not enough preachers. It's not enough preachers. But if you'll go and be a blessing to the people that you work with, the people you go to school with, people that you live next door to, people you go to the gym with, people that you regularly see in the community. And if we all do that, you know what happens? Our little concentric circles of influence begin to bump into each other, and eventually we touch every person in every home and every place around the globe. It's an amazing thing. Two questions this morning. First of all, have you received... God's gift of life in Jesus Christ. You see, these lepers were sitting there that day, and they, they just began to realize, man, we're just, <laughs> we're undone. It's about over for us. One of two things is going to kill us. One of three things is going to kill us. I'm going to die from leprosy. I'm going to die of starvation. Or the Syrians are going to take me out as they begin to break down the wall. Either way, I'm dead. If I don't do something. So they began to faith into God. They began to, to just trust God and His provision in their life. And the reality for us is this we are all going to die. And the Bible says that we're all under the curse of sin. We carry this uh, endemic uh, curse upon our life t- that's carried on from Adam all the way to where we are today, generation after generation after generation, born into sin because our mamas and daddies are sinners innate within us. And the only hope for our life is to be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. So this morning, if you come to a place in your life where you have knowingly and willingly trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'm not asking if you're religious, not asking if you're a church member, not asking if you've been baptized, not asking if your grandma is a Christian, not asking any of those questions. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Second question. If you're in a relationship with Jesus, are you actively sharing God's blessings with others? As a Christian, when's the last time you told someone else about what Jesus has done for you? If you've never done it, if it's been a long time, today would be a great time to say, you know what, Lord, I've sinned by not sharing the blessings that you've given me. I've been a hoarder of your blessings. I've, I've been like Hattie Green. I've had so much wealth in my life, spiritual wealth in my life. And rather than being a, a conduit of that wealth to be, to be a blessing to someone else, I've sealed it off so that my life is pretty ugly. When I can fake it and I can doctor it up on the outside, but really on the inside, I'm not what I need to be. Remember sponges? I'm going to close with this illustration. You remember sponges? I don't know how many people use sponges in the kitchen anymore. 
But my grandma used to have a sponge that she would set up there on the counter when I was a kid. Take that sponge, and you'd wipe up the water around the thing, and then you just set it up there. You're supposed to wring it out, but if you didn't do that, you just kind of set it up there. And what happens to a, 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 a sponge when it's still got water in it, and you set it up there and leave it for a while? What happens to it? It stinks. That's right. It sours, Travis. It sours. Your life is like sponge. If you know Jesus Christ, he has flooded your life with his goodness and his life. But he wants you to t- take your life and wring it out so that others can experience that blessing as well. But if you don't do that, what happens to you? You begin to sour. You begin to smell bad. You begin to look bad. Little things grow on you. You got mold and stuff. Nasty thing. But if you'll wring your life out on a regular basis and allow God's blessings, particularly the gospel flow into someone else's life, you know what continues to happen to your sponge? It keeps getting filled. It stays fresh. Smells good, feels good, continues to be usable. But if you don't do that, you're a sour mess. Where are you at this morning? You're in a relationship with Jesus? As a person who knows Jesus, have you been sharing his blessings with others? Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you that you have been gracious and good to each and every one of us. Lord, as we've read in this passage this morning... You've been good to us even when we don't deserve it. God, these lepers were filthy. They would have been just appalling to look at. They would have smelled bad. God, they were probably mean and cantankerous just because they had no interaction with others. They were outcasts in their life. Sin, the effects of sin had really taken its toll in their life. And yet, God, you chose to be gracious. It's the same with each and every one of us. The effects of sin have completely and utterly contaminated our lives. We are totally depraved. We have nothing good to offer. There's nothing that, is, that we can do that's good enough. But the Bible tells us in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, we are the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe could have eternal life in Christ Jesus. This morning there's probably people sitting in this room who have never placed their faith and trust in Jesus. They've never fully repented of their sins. They've never fully just believed on you. God, they might have believed on religion. They might have believed on on someone someone else's faith. But God, they've never come to a place of faith and repentance. And today is the day for them to be saved. As we move into a time of response, God, I pray that your spirit would lead them to that decision. For the rest of us, Lord, this is a day to really be challenged and encouraged to do the right thing. So many times we set on your blessings. We experience your goodness. And because we don't wring it out into someone else's life, God, it begins to sour And it's no good for anyone. So Lord, I pray this morning that as we realize that about ourselves, that we would do what's necessary, that we would do what these men did and acknowledge what we're doing is not right. Confessing that as sin, owning that as something that needs to be uh, confessed and and forsaken and receive forgiveness there. And then God, continue to do what these four men did. Go and tell the king. Go and tell others.
go and do what's right. Lord, that may mean today getting on the phone and just calling somebody that God has placed upon our heart. This week, taking a meal to, to a neighbor who's in a real tough situation. Opening our mouths at school this week and just telling someone about Jesus because we love Jesus and we love that person. Help us to do what's right. As we move into a time of response, I pray that your spirit would lead us to to make the right decisions. Bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen.